Hey, Cornerstone Boulder family. Uh, this is Rodolfo from uh, Mexico City. I am the lead pastor at Vereda Church, and I just wanted to uh, thank you all uh, for the uh, generous gift that you gave us, this sound system that uh, has allowed us to have a very, very nice sound in church where we can worship together, preach the word. I know that this is just a resource that's gonna bring together so many people. We wanna bless the community where God has placed us, and this is a huge blessing. For years, we have been renting on a uh, weekly basis a sound system, and you guys have freed us for that, and we can uh, use that money to bring the community. So we, ju uh, we just wanted to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your generosity and heart. Uh, in the near future, what we want is, uh, and, and, and your pastors have called us and allowed us this amazing honor and opportunity to be called sister churches. This means that we get to walk together, learn from each other. Of course, we have so much more to learn from you. Uh, I feel that you have, uh, have to learn from us, but on this, on this um, mutual beneficial relationship of loving each other and learning from each other we're so thankful for that um, feel free to visit us anytime mi casa es su casa we're here in the middle of the la condesa which is jean's barrio or neighborhood every time that he comes to mexico but feel free to to call us family as we uh, love to call you family so thank you so so much One of the exciting things is you got to see that is Rodolfo and uh, Benny are at a church in Mexico City that Gene has made a connection with. And we've been developing a relationship with them over the last few years. And back in March, Brian and I, and what I will affectionately refer to as the blue-eyed Jew, which is Gene, we followed him to Mexico on an adventure, much like Carmen Sandiego. And so as we went down there, we were able to meet these amazing people, Rodolfo and his church, and to see the impact that they're having on the city through a local community, but also a ministry that is bringing people out of human trafficking. And as he said that he, they have a lot to learn from us, it's actually the opposite. That as Gene and Brian and I were there and sitting across and sharing meals with those people, those in those moments you have and you, see, you feel that sense of you're singing across from greatness to see that the Lord is doing something absolutely historical and amazing through a group of people, and he's letting us, unlikely he's up here in Boulder County, head down to Mexico City and to be able to partner with them. And one of the things that I love is that we were able to give them enough money to be able to buy the sound system that they had wanted. And what it, the image of that, if you could just think about it, because a lot of times we get excited about toys, and if we don't think of these as toys but tools, but to see that we literally were able to provide the money that they may amplify their praise and amplify their message. And I hope that we're able to do that relationally as well as continue to support them with resources. So I'm so proud of our community, so proud of Gene. He just continues to find amazing networks and places for to expand the impact and the influence of Cornerstone. So I'm grateful for that. So congratulations on that. We're really excited. Today, we are going to be wrapping up our series, The Upside Down Kingdom. It's been a wonderful journey of learning about the principles and the values of the kingdom of God. And what I want to focus on today is the principle that in the kingdom of God, there are no tasks too great and there are no tasks too small. In the kingdom of God, there are no tasks too great and there are no tasks too small. Will you pray with me?
What are you doing today, Lord? Would you open our eyes to it? Where are you moving? May we set our sails to be filled by that. Holy Spirit, we submit to you today. Jesus, we want to do all the things that you are doing and the Father is doing, and I ask that you will continue that as we move through worship and as we move through the word. Lord, I ask that what is of me will be forgotten of what of you will go down into our souls and that will be something that we live out of. I pray, Lord, that you embed on our hearts this empowerment and this humility that we may see that there is no task too great and there is no task too small. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, drafting off Dan, this has the potential to be Weepy Dad Sunday because I'm going to share a little bit about my daughter, Grace. And in 29 days, we pack up our car and we move Grace to Arizona. The band's going to come up now as I just go in the back. (laughs) Grace is our eldest child, and I'm so excited. But one of the things happen as you enter into this weepy dad stage is you begin to reminisce and think about all the stories. And I have a million stories that I would love to share with you, but I'm only going to share one. And it happened two years ago. This is one of my favorites. Some of you have heard this one. Grace, all her life, has had an affinity to play basketball, and so ever since she was able to dribble a ball, we have been playing one-on-one games, and we have been practicing basketball, and two years ago, no, 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 it would have been like three years ago, Grace was 15 years old, she was a sophomore at Niwa Elementary, and she was playing for the JV team, and she, oh, so what was, what was funny? They have an upper class, like you can do both. I was like, what's so funny? So Grace was at Niwot High School. Her sister was somewhere else. Don't even worry about it. So Grace was at Niwot High School, and she was playing for the mighty Lady Cougars, and they were playing against this wicked, evil school called Centaurus. And they were playing in their gym before they had fixed everything. And in the game, the girls are playing, and it gets down to the last minute. And then it gets down to the last 30 seconds. And in the game, Grace is fouled, and they are down by four points. Are you ready for this? They're down by four points. Grace is fouled. Grace is like five foot nothing. She's really upset because my family on the Wardle side is tall. On my wife's side, they ain't that big. So Grace is a little bit short. But she's mighty. She gets to the free throw line. They are down by four. Those wicked, evil centaurists. They are trying to defeat the Cougars. And Grace hits both free throws. Now they are only down by two. Going down the court, Centaurus has the ball. They take it down to about 20 seconds or so. They shoot and they miss. There's a rebound. Grace runs on the left side of the court. There is an outlet pass. It gets to the corner at the three. Does she drive? No, 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 no. If you're going to go, go strong. She rears back her little five-foot-one self. Three, two, launches. One, Boom, nails it, wins the game. It was the most incredible day of my life. All I remember is standing, screaming, and somehow coming to 
10 seconds later, somehow I went from the top of the bleachers in this ecstatic adrenaline rush state, and I'm on the court with the teenage girls dancing with them, cheering as if they just won the World Cup, the Olympics, the NBA championship, and whatever Brian won when he was in high school. And I'm screaming and I'm yelling, and it's the and I'm looking and I'm in my jeans and my boots and my beanie, just looking like I just robbed a bank, and they're all looking at me going. And I am so ecstatic because my girl just had ice in her veins and came down and scored the winning shot. And I was so amazed. I mean, I have to, like, eat a snack because my adrenaline rush, my hypoglycemia has ended over. I'm having to, like, stumble around the building. And it was amazing to see her step into that moment to see that there was no task too great. Give me the ball. I want to be the one who takes the final shot. And she does it, and she wins the game. But the thing that was so amazing is what happened next. Grace was a sophomore, and she would dress and be able to sit on the bench for the varsity game. Well, one of the jobs as the underclassmen is, before the game, and as the seniors and the juniors are lining up, the sophomores have to go get the water bottles and bring them out. And as I'm still... In this ecstatic celebration, I see Grace leave, go get the water bottles, fill them up, and put them on the bench by the towels for the seniors. And my amazement and my joy went to awe to say, oh my gosh, I am watching a kingdom principle in real life and in real time that for this little 15-year-old girl, there was no task too great. Give me the ball. Let me win the game. And also, I'll be the one that gets the water so that the older players have something to drink. And I sat there and watched this, and it was something of this blooming of the kingdom of God and going, isn't that amazing? And as a dad, I'm so proud, half embarrassed because that must come from her mother because that is not from me. Because <laughs> I would have still been doing victory laps around the gym. They would have had to stop the game if I made the winning shot. But Grace just goes, gives me a hug, smiles, and goes get water bottles and lays them out. Obviously, I'm a proud dad, but isn't that an incredible example of stepping into a moment that there's a task before you that's great and that everyone will cheer for and that it will advance your team, and then there's this moment that is quiet and it is secret where water bottles are filled and they're laid out for the older players who are about to get beat by those rascals, the centaurists. But I love this because I got to see in real life and in real time this image and this practice of a principle of the kingdom of God that as he calls us his own, he says, there is no task too great for you and there is no task too small. This is the principle and the reason that I was able to notice this in my daughter is is something the Lord began to codify in my heart early on in ministry as I read the pages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation to begin to see that this is just how God is. And this is how he calls his people to, that he's the one who provides for the lilies and the sparrows, and he's also the one that calls us by name. One of my favorite examples of this is in 1 Samuel 16 through 17, the anointing of King David. You see in these pages in chapter 16, God has just re rejected Saul as the king, and he says, we're now going to anoint a new king, Samuel. It's time to so get your oil. And head on up to the house of Jesse. And Samuel heads to the house of Jesse. The prophet 
Samuel was the prophet. He goes to the house of Jesse, and he says, Jesse, yes, Samuel, bring out all your sons, for today we are anointing a new king. And he says, well, that'll be great. So he lines up his son, his first son, who is tall and who is strong, and he sees him. He's going, yep, that's the one right there. We're going to get rid of Saul, and we're going to bring this guy in because he's strong and he's big. Just like Alex Kelly walking down that aisle. <laughs> he's one of my props today. But the Lord says, nope, it's not the first brother. Comes to the second brother, to the third, and he goes all the way down the line, and Samuel's getting a little bit nervous, and Jesse's looking, going, uh-oh. And Samuel, thinking, maybe I heard from God wrong. Jesse, do you have any more sons? Yeah, I got one. Says he's Rudy, which means it's kind of, uh, he's small. I got one son, he's out tending the sheep. Do you want me to get him? Yeah, go get him. Let's see what the Lord has. And David is out tending the sheep, doing a low task. His brothers don't have to do this. This is the task that the younger brother has to do because the others don't want to do it. And David is out there tending the sheep. And as he comes up, the Lord said, yep, that's him. And Samuel goes, that's him? Yep, that's him. And the Lord says, anoint his head because he will be the next king of Israel. And he anoints him, and in front of all his brothers, he went from the sheep pen to the, be the next king of Israel in a moment. And right there, no task too great, no task too small. But I love what happens next in 16. David is the anointed king of Israel, and Saul is, he's having some troubles, folks. Saul is in a bad mood all the time. And so some of the officials say, you know what, I'm not sure what can cure him, but it would be nice if someone would just play some sweet little lullabies to soothe him to sleep. Well, who could do such a thing? I know there's a young man named David, and he plays a mean 10-string lyre, which is like a little guitar, and a harp. And so they go get David, and they say, David, we want you to go before the king and at night, as he's going to bed, you sit on a chair and you play music for the king to soothe him. Now remember, shepherd to anointed king to singing lullabies to a madman. And he does that. No task too great. No task too small. And every time he plays, it soothes the king. At this time, it, the scriptures tell us that David is going back and forth from the house of Saul to the house of Jesse. And when he gets to the house of Jesse, they don't treat him like the future king. He's still got chores to do. He has to watch the sheep. And he's a shepherd. And then one day, while he's there for his weekend stint, Jesse comes to David and he says to him, David, come here. I have a task for you. Yes, Father. I want you to take this charcuterie board to your brother's. I want you to take these meat and cheeses and drinks and grain to your brothers and also take it to the officials who are off at war. And he takes this food and he goes from a shepherd, anointed king, soothing Saul, to now he's the snack boy. As, if, as the Israelites are about to fight the, the, the Philistines. And he takes the snacks to his brothers, and he hands them out. And while this is happening, Goliath, the giant, the Philistine, comes out, and he says, fee fi fo fum I want to kill some Israelite scum. And he's standing there, and he wants to, he's going to, he says, if one of you will fight me and kill me, then my army will submit to you. And if one of, and 
if I kill one of yours, then your army has to submit to us. And Israel, all the men of Israel are terrified. Like you see a collective, not it, as, as, as Goliath is standing there. And David, who's handing out snacks to his brothers, hears this. And he goes, what's with this? What's going on for this Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? I'll go up against them. And his brothers are like, you don't know what you're talking about. You should be back with the 12 sheep that our dad has. And he mocks him. And David won't stop. And one of the army officials hears him, and they bring him before Saul. And David says, I'll go. And Saul says, could you imagine that moment? Saul is looking at a teenage boy and going, the future of Israel depends on the snack boy and the guy who plays music while I'm in a bad mood. Okay. Imagine him looking around to his, his officials and going, do we have any other options? Does anybody else want to go? Or is this it? Uh, that's it. So it's, Saul puts his armor on David. One of the things that's notable is Saul is the tallest man in all of Israel. David is a teenage boy. He's small. And so they put the, clo- the armor on him, and he's going to die. He's dragging them on the ground and going, this is not going to work. And so he takes it off. You know the story. He grabs five smooth stones. He grabs a sling. He goes out. And what happens? He slays the giant. But I love the imagery here in the context of the whole story. Moments ago, he's handing out cheese and grain and meats to his brothers because his dad said, go do this. Before that, he's playing music to soothe the the soul of a a madman. Before that, he is anointed to be king, and before that, he's a shepherd. This image of here is a man who all in one moment is the anointed king, the servant of his father, the minstrel in the courts of the king, and a man after God's own heart. And in the midst of this, there is no task that is too great, and there's no task that is too small. I believe this is an example for us because you look at the unlikely nature of David in the midst of this and say he's a young man and all of it is wrong. But there's an empowerment, a bravery, and a humility that comes that any task you put in front of me, God, I'm going to say yes to. Whether it's handing out food or it's slaying a giant. As we fast forward, as we fast forward to the Gospels, We see the same thing in the life of Jesus. Jesus, in John chapter 11, has one of his most profound and exciting miracles as he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. He says, Lazarus, come on out. And what happens? Lazarus comes out. And he raises the dead man to life. We see that a couple chapters later, he's going to be heading towards the cross. We see that he is going to be overcoming sin and death on the cross. We see that he's going to be raising from again, but from raising Lazarus from the dead to himself raising from the dead, conquering death and sin and bringing reconciliation for God and humanity. In between that, he stops and pauses for a story that tells us that he washes the feet of the disciples. So he goes from raising the dead to washing feet. I want you to listen to this. In John chapter 13, it was just before Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, 
You loathe them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured a water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And I'm going to jump down after to verse 12. He said, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you that no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Picture the scene. Jesus is the promised one. God has been silent for 400 years. John the Baptist says, get ready. Messiah is on his way. And then Jesus shows up. He turns water into wine. He feeds 5,000. He heals. He teaches. He raises the dead. He has tons of followers. There's crowds so big when he does something and he goes to speak that people actually literally have to tear the roof off of the place to drop someone in to be in his presence. His followers have witnessed all these things, and at times they said, go away from me, for you are so amazing. I'm unfit to see you. And now... He has something to show them. He's just raised the dead, and he's about to head to the cross and then raised from the dead himself. And he pauses for a moment, knowing that the time has come. And this great action and this buildup as they are in this upper room, this Passover time together, his action is not to give them a mission statement. His action is not to perform a miracle to wow them. His action is to take the posture of a servant. You see, when the disciples got the upper room ready, no one washed the visitor's feet. That was the job of the host. It was the job of the servant. And as the disciples prepared the room, it was one of them going, I ain't washing your guys' feet. Because that would have been a symbol that they were lower than one of the other ones. And there was a little bit of competition within the disciples. You can read that. James and John had a little bit of that. Peter also. Not so sure about Thaddeus, but there's not a lot about him, period. But we see that Jesus' actions in between raising Lazarus from the dead and him raising from the dead is to take a posture and to take out wash basins and to put a towel around him and to take off the ancient Chacos and Birkenstocks that they were wearing. And they were walking through these dirty streets where animals would be. And he takes off their shoes and he begins to wash their feet in preparation for the meal. Could you imagine the room? Probably the air went out of the room of like, Ooh, somebody should have done this. Literally, the Messiah is doing the work of a servant. And in that moment, there's a beautiful thing. Because Jesus redeems the acts and the behavior of a servant, and he elevates it to the level of a Messiah. He actually brings glory 
and redemption to these small acts. And he washes the disciples' feet. And Peter rebukes him. He says, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. Then give me a full bath. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. Peter, why do we have to go to extremes all the time? You've had a bath. Not recently, but you have had a bath. I just need to wash your feet. And he washes his feet. And as he gets up, I love it says he returns to his place. He returns to his place and he says to them, listen, I did this because I want you to do this for one another. That we see this example, this kingdom principle, this invitation for all of us who call Jesus our Messiah and our Lord, for all of us to step into a kingdom principle that is so countercultural because in our world, doing some of these tasks would not be appropriate because do you know who I am? That is beneath me. But in the kingdom of God, you step in and you say, do you know who I am? There is neither anything above me or below me because there is no task too great. I will slay a giant and I will call the dead to rise, but I will also hand out food and I will also wash feet. It's almost as if the topography that we look at in our view of things, we look at there's these tasks here and then there's these tasks here. But as God looks down upon us, the topography is flat. He says there's really not that big of a difference between raising the dead and washing feet if it's all done for my glory. There's an undercurrent. There's many, many different things within this text that we could pull out and that we could talk about for a long time. But I just want to spend a few moments, and I just want to look at these three things. Because I believe that they're an undercurrent that flows and brings some energy to our ability to be able to step into a task that is great and a task that is small. And the first thing that we see in these passages is that the motivation for Jesus to step into resurrecting, to, to, to calling Lazarus to come back to life and washing the disciples' feet, the motivation was love. The motivation was love. He was reflecting the nature and character of himself and the Father and the Spirit because it says in 1 John that God is love. And so his primary motivation wasn't recognition, it wasn't advancement, and it wasn't power. It was love. He called Lazarus out because it was one he loved. And he washes the disciples' feet because he loved them. And this is just what it said. It says, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Before he does this act, it doesn't say he loved them by going to the cross. He loves them right there. That the motivation for this small task and the motivation for the great task were the same thing. It was love. It was first to show them love. You guys, I love you. I love you enough to get down on my hands and knees and to get dirty, and to wash your dirty, stinky feet. And I love you enough to die on the cross, to forgive your sins, to reconcile you. And I love you enough to raise. And I love you enough that this is the way I'm showing you my love, but it also is an example when he turns it on them. And you see, see how I behaved right here? You guys remember how David behaved? See how we behaved? That's how you treat one another. There's no task, no, ta 
no task too great, no task too small. It's all to be motivated by love, to show people how you love them, and to show people how they are to love. Quick story. I've bragged on Gene many, many times that he has embodied this principle. When he's out in the parking lot, pointing people where to go. But one of the things that happened, probably in the first few months that I was here at Cornerstone, when I got hired back in 1842, we were uh, needed to change in that projector. It was the one before that. And every like month, the filter had to be changed. And so under the areas of worship was also equipment. And they would bring out this ladder that was just really just, a, it was not a ladder, Jacob's ladder descending from heaven. It was just like, if you went on this ladder, there's a 50% chance you would be going to heaven because it is rickety as all get out. And um, I think it was the A-frame because there was two, and they both were just death traps. And one of the things is I, Gene's like, we got to change this filter. Everyone's, we got to change this filter. And I'm in here, and I am pacing around because these people are new and to me, and I don't want to let them know that I am deathly afraid of heights. Like two-story malls, I will lose my mind. Like I'm just like cold sweats. I turn into a rage monkey and just Stay away from me. I'm afraid of heights. And so I'm pacing around this ladder looking at it. I'm like, I got to do this. I don't want to embarrass myself. This is my boss, and they're going to know that I'm afraid. And Gene's kind of like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, I'm terrified. I do not want to go up there. And you know what he did? Climbed up the ladder and changed the filter. And as I'm watching him do this, and I've watched Brian do it a number of times. I've watched other individuals do it because everybody knows I'm terrified to go on this ladder. But one of the things I watched is I was watching the founder of a church and someone who was a part of a movement that launched Promise Keepers, someone who was shaping the lives of individuals across our county, someone who would get up weekly and preach the word of God. They would do all these great tasks. And now I'm watching Gene, the blue-eyed Jew, who actually has more of green eyes, but it doesn't rhyme as well, climb a ladder and change a filter because I'm scared. And in that moment, I saw something. He showed me how he loved me. I got it. He also showed me how to love the people that I lead. Just by climbing the ladder, he said, his action showed me sometimes you're going to have to step into things you're afraid of to care and protect the people that you love and lead. For him, there was no task too great, no task too small, because it was motivated by love. The next thing we see in this is we see not only is it motivated by love, but it is empowered by God. That the undercurrent and the energy of stepping into any task that is great or any task that is small is we ride on the empowerment of God. And this is what Jesus did. And I don't want to get into, you know, all the theological arguments of he's God, so this and that. Just listen to what it is saying here. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and they had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. I love this. The motivation for Jesus to call Lazarus out of the tomb, come on, buddy, come on out. And his motivation to get down on his hands and knees was he knew that he had been given the authority and the empowerment of his Father to do these things. And he was a conduit of that empowerment. 
the thing he did is it wasn't the crowds that validated his authority. It was his father that validated his authority. He had it and he acted from it. He didn't do it to get it. Does that make sense? And so Jesus was confident, absolutely confident to go, I am empowered by my Father. He has sent me to do these things, and he has given me everything I need, that the spirit that we were together in heaven is flowing through me right now, and I will be able to call the dead to rise, and I will be able to wash feet, and I will do it with the same love and the same authority, and it is unwavering what others may think. The recognition doesn't validate the authority authority rides in on the action. I wonder if this is what sustained him for 30 years when he's not doing miracles. You know, I have such an issue, and we talk about this all the time as we do group therapy here on, on Sundays, but one of the things is my performance brings a validation of who I am. This is the authority I have because I'm able to do these things. Jesus for 30 years doesn't do miracles unless you read the apocryphal books, and we're not going to get into that. But Jesus doesn't do these things. But there's no wavering because he knows, I have been empowered by the Father to do these things, and I will call the dead to rise, and I will wash feet, all under the authority and the empowerment of my Father. I love in, in Philippians chapter uh, 4.13, yes, 4.13, um, what Paul says, I can do all things, who him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ. One of the things that I, when I read this, I'm thinking of a giant slaying and calling the dead to rise. But Paul in this also has, I can do everything from the menial tasks, from washing feet and handing out food and giving a cup of cold water to saying something nice, to sending an email. That's part of the all things that we're called to, to do in the authority and the empowerment of God, motivated by love. We see that the energy is coming from the Father, flowing through us to be able to do these things. And whether we are washing feet or raising the dead, it doesn't matter because the source is the same. This week at our staff meeting, we were able to celebrate the birthday of Mary Howard. Mary Howard is a counselor here on staff at Cornerstone. And every year I say, Mary, I'm so sorry, I have the same thing to say. She is a person that embodies that there is no task too great and there is no task too small. A few months ago, Mary traveled to, I believe it was Texas. Is that correct, Brian? Texas to work at some of the detainment uh, locations where they had um, children that were experiencing trauma in the detainment places. And since she's a counselor and she works with individuals in trauma and she knows Spanish, she went there to care for these individuals. This isn't the first time she goes to anywhere there is a disaster. Mary will come in a smile and a flower dress and she will say, well, I'm gonna be leaving to go to this place where no one wants to go. And she steps in and she begins to care for souls and to nurture them in the worst of environments. I would say that's a great task. And when our building is not in shambles, there are normally flowers all around. And you can catch the same person on any given day of the week outside with a little watering can, watering the flowers and pruning the trees and nurturing those little plants to grow. And you look in her eyes and there's the same joy and there's the same care and there's the same love. When there's trauma and tragedy, Mary steps in. And she always makes sure 
that the flowers look nice because she cultivates beauty and cultivates growth. And for her, it doesn't seem like her credentials come from her license, but her credentials comes. I've been given the authority of God to cultivate the earth and to care for souls, and I'll do it all. The third thing we see after we are motivated by love, we are empowered by God. And the last thing that I will share is that we are secure in our relationship with God and our identity. Jesus says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the table and he went over. I love this little piece because it's a bookend that Jesus, in the midst of it, motivated by love, empowered by God, says, you know what? I am absolutely secure in who I am and whose I am that it doesn't matter the tasks I do. I get to step in those tasks that others may look down upon. Jesus was absolutely, and this finds its way into almost every one of my messages, because I believe it is so important that we look at this principle of the image of Jesus and we see that he's absolutely confident in his relationship with his father. He was absolutely secure that when his father said, this is my son at his baptism, whom I'm well pleased, that that shaped who he was and shaped how he lived. That he was absolutely secure on the Mount of Transfiguration that as the father said, this is my son, listen to him. That he was so confident in his relationship with his father and his relationship with who he was that he was able to do anything that was great or anything was small because it never wavered his identity or his relationship. Oftentimes, I think that my performance or the position that I hold affects my relationships and who I am. If I do something great, I think I'm great. If I do something small, I think I'm small. Jesus looks at that and says, oh, son, we've got a long way to go. Because your identity is secure before you even act. And Jesus shows that before he even did a miracle at his baptism, the father said, love this guy, that's my son. And he lived his life from the confidence of his relationship with his father, that as he was sent to earth, he was from the father, and regardless of how things went and how it goes, he was going back to his father. And that the vision wasn't just the cross, and the vision just wasn't the empty tomb, but for Jesus, there was a vision beyond that. It was the embrace and the reconnection with his father. I gotta say that again, because that's the first time I've heard it. That Jesus had a vision beyond the cross and beyond the tomb, and that was the reconnection with his father. He knew he was from him, and he knew he would return to him. And so if he was calling the dead to rise or washing feet, well, that didn't matter. Because the vision was secure in his identity of who he was and whose he was. The energy that helps us to be able to do the great things that people may say and the small things is that they're motivated by love, not recognition or power or advancement. That they're empowered by God, not our intellect and our abilities or our position. And our identity is secure. Yesterday, I dropped my wife off at the airport. For the last 15 years... Destry, my wife, 
has done retreats. They're eight-day retreats. She's a counselor. Where individuals from literally all over the world, 12 at a time, come. And there they are cared for. And these people are experiencing trauma, breakdown. They're in a bad spot. This isn't, this isn't the spa where it's like, you know, I just think I need to get away for a little bit. This is the people that are in a place of just saying, you know, I'm in a really, really rough spot. For the last 15 years, Destry quietly heads on out. The, tr- the retreats are called Come Away With Me from the Passage of Jesus, and the kids and I call them Go Away From Us retreats. She goes on a Go Away From Us retreat. But it's almost like you're sending someone into some crisis, and this person has a skill set, and you're excited to say, you know what, you're the one that does it. You're the special agent that is sending in to go do this. And I love it as I drop her off from the airport, uh, drop her off at the airport to go, and as she goes for these eight-day retreats where she's walking with people through the darkest parts of their lives and hearing the stories of how by Thursday, oh, no, we don't know, you got to pray. It's going real, real. we got to see God show up. And then on Monday when we hear the miracles and we see hear the evidence of what God has been doing in and through the lives of these people, it's amazing. And then I love that in a week and a half, Destry will go be a para, literally now at Niwot Elementary School, where she will be a teacher's aide in a kindergarten classroom. I love the fact that uh, Niwot is wonderful, but I don't know if they know that they have someone that works with world leaders (laughs) caring for their kindergartners. I don't know if they know that the individual that is helping those kids read was also a professor of the year at Simpson Simpson University, her first try at adjuncting. And Destry doesn't care at all about those credentials or those accolades. She loves those kindergartners just like she loves those world leaders. Destry is Destry every minute of her life. (laughs) And there's no task too great for her. And there's no task too small. And one of the motivations is I see she's motivated by love. I see that she's empowered by God. But Destry has a security in her relationship with who her father is and who she is. And literally no credential can change that. And she teaches me every day that there is no task too great. And there is no task too small. As the band comes up, I don't know if you could tell, but I'm excited about this topic. This is the one of the core values for my life, that I will struggle to the day I die. And I also will call it out when I see it every chance I get. Oh, that's the kingdom of God. What do you mean? I just made lunch for that person. Yeah, that was amazing. Because you also wrote a podcast that people are listening to all across the country. Well, that's the kingdom of God. You moved to Uganda to care for those people. And you also helped a family with their homeschooling. That there is something beautiful at how wide and how vast the tasks are and the topography of the kingdom is different. That we are invited to follow in the footsteps of our rabbi Jesus where he calls the dead to rise and he washes feet. That we are of the lineage because we are adopted in, for those of us who are not Jewish, that we are adopted in into the lineage of King David where there are times where we will hand out snacks and play music and we will also slay giants and be kings and queens. But it's not easy. It's a simple message. It's a hard task to live. 
Because David was mocked by his brothers when he stepped up to slay the giant. What do you think you can do? Go back and tend those raggedy sheep. When Jesus, the Messiah, goes to wash the feet, Peter knocks his hands away and says, you can't do this. And he rebukes him. There'll be times in each of our lives where individuals don't know what we're doing. Hey, you know what you're doing? You're being a bad example to your employees because you're doing tasks they can do. You need to lift up and raise above them. Show them who's boss. Yeah, that's not what we do. We don't wield our authority. What I want to do is invite you now that if this message resonates with you and you say, yes, Lord, I want this kingdom value to be embedded on my heart, to be on my mind, to be something I think about, something that I feel, and something that I live out in every moment. If you want that, that's what I'm going to ask. And go with me on this, because I want to pray for you. I want you to put out your non-dominant hand. May this represent to the Lord, Lord, this represents, I'm less strong in this. And Lord, as we, as a congregation, put out this hand to represent, we say, Jesus, motivated by your love for us, we will step into any task that is great. We say yes to the great things you have before us those things that are scary, those things that seem too big, those things that seem like we don't have the strength or the skill, we say with our non-dominant hand lifted up, we say yes. I say yes to those things, whether it's calling the dead to rise, whether it's slaying giants or becoming kings and queens. And Lord, I say yes to you. May you motivate me with your love. May you empower me with your word and may your spirits. And may I also realize in this moment that my relationship with you is secure not by my actions, but by your actions, Jesus. Sit there for a moment saying yes. now invite you to raise your dominant hand, lift that up. And now, Lord, I say to you, I say yes to every task that looks small. That every task you put in for me, washing feet, soothing a soul, giving out food, that these tasks that may in the world's eyes look small, I say yes to them and I will give them my full strength. I'll give them everything I got. Motivated by love, empowered by you, and confident. Just stay in this posture. There's two groups of people. Thank you for sticking with me this long. There's two groups of people that I want to pray for, and, and this has just been on my heart all week, and I don't know why, but I just got to say it. So here we go. I want to bless in the name of Jesus 
parents of young children. Because in these years of the triumphs and trials of having little kids, you can often be so drowned in what seems like small tasks <laughs> that you feel like you'll never have great ones again. And I pray in this moment that the Lord will begin to lift your eyes. And I bless you with perseverance and patience. That you see that as you're caring for those small little ones who demand everything and the tasks are so unglamorous. That first of all, I speak to your soul and I say, this doesn't change any of your empowerment. It also doesn't change that you've been anointed by God. Just because you're not getting to do things right now doesn't mean you won't do them later. I also pray that you may realize that your relationship and your identity is secure. When you are giving out everything you have for these little ones, it's oftentimes you can feel like you're losing yourself. And the Lord whispers today and just reminds you of who you are. And I pray that there is just a, almost an injection of inspiration that daily you were calling the dead to rise and you were washing feet. And so I pray for that group of people that the Lord may meet you here and he may bless you. He may sustain you in these years. The final group is I want to pray for individuals who are leaders over other people, be that in business and education or whatever that you may, I pray that this may not become a sermon. I pray that this is such a value that it shifts the culture where you work and it shifts the culture of those who are underneath you on the, the hierarchy and it shifts the culture of those who are above you on the hierarchy and that there is almost like this wave that is in, it is unstoppable that goes through your organization as people begin to see principles of the kingdom where people say there is no task too great and there is no task too small and we'll do them motivated by love for the glory of God, whether they know it or not. And I bless you with that, that it may be something that you distribute through your organization. And Lord, now as I end, I pray that at Cornerstone that we will be a community of people where from everyone, from the youngest to the oldest, that this is a value and it is so part of our language. And Lord, that we also catch people being amazing doing this. And we celebrate that. I pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Messiah.